My guest for this week is a man much smarter than me, a man that understands the world of finance, stocks, assets, you know, buzzwords in the uh, money industry. And we talk about Bitcoin and things like that. My guest is Anthony Pompliano. I was very happy to have him on. Very happy to uh, get the chance to speak with him. I'm thankful that he came on and gave me a few minutes of his time. He hosts the Pomp Podcast, and he writes the Pomp Letter. You can subscribe to his podcast, the Pomp Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can subscribe to the Pomp Letter at pompletter.com. I hope you enjoy our topic. Go ahead. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Hope you enjoy the topics, but I also hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, thank you guys for listening and enjoy. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Hey, what's going on uh, this week? I have a promised guest that I am so happy to talk to. It's Anthony Pompliano. He's taking a break from eating Domino's <laughs> to uh, to sit down and talk to me about finance, Bitcoin, and everything in between. Anthony, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, I mean, we can just get right into it. Um, you're really big in the finance world. You do the Pomp Letter. Um, you obviously have a huge following on Twitter and, you know, just the internet in general. Uh, you kind of got that. I was exposed to you with the um, Bitcoin stuff you do. What, what made you interested in Bitcoin and got you started with Bitcoin for people that don't know exactly what Bitcoin is and how did you get involved in it? Yeah, look, I, I started out um, mining. Um, I had a, a, a friend of mine and partner, uh, Jason Williams. Uh, him and I um, were basically pitched by a, a young guy on, uh, on the mining business. We thought it was interesting, so we started to, uh, to build some mining facilities. Uh, and from there, you pretty much have to figure a lot of stuff out, right? You got to figure out um, what exactly are we going to do in terms of converting this cryptocurrency into dollars? How are we going to store it? What are digital wallets? All that kind of stuff. And uh, the deeper we went down the rabbit hole, the more interested we became. Um, and uh, it's one of these things that, uh, you know, the more you learn about something, the more you realize, uh, one, maybe you don't know, uh, but also, two, you become more fascinated with the, the power and potential of it. I think that, uh, you know, kind of my journey with Bitcoin is a perfect example. Why, why do you feel like not only I mean, cryptocurrency in general, but Bitcoin is so important today in, in times that we live in now, times like these, as some might say? <laughs> For sure. I, I think that there's two key pieces, right? So the first being um, the macro environment obviously is um, uh, really um, kind of a tailwind for Bitcoin, right? What I mean by that is uh, there's a ton of manipulation in the economy in terms of interest rates have been drawn down to zero. Uh, you've got a lot of quantitative easing. And so you get a lot of uh, kind of the devaluation of the dollar. Uh, there's the threat uh, potentially of, uh, of inflation. And so people want something that uh, is kind of outside the control of uh, central banks and governments. And so historically that's been gold. Gold served as kind of an inflation hedge um, and, uh, and did a pretty good job of doing that. Uh, Say, look, I want 
on something that um, is has those properties, but also is uh, kind of built for this digital world. So I think that's where Bitcoin kind of stepped in um, and is getting quite a bit of uh, attention and adoption. Yeah, did you unplug your headphones really quick or your microphone? Oh, can you hear me better? Yeah, that was better. It was good. It was just faded out really fast. I thought I pulled out my headphones. No, no, no. no. I did it. My fault. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so you said something interesting there. Quantitative easing. Can you explain? Because, I mean, I didn't know what that was until recently when I started looking into the stock market, really. Um, what, what What is quantitative easing? And what does that mean when the government does quantitative easing and lowers rates? What does that do to the value of the dollar, really? For sure. Yeah. So the whole idea of quantitative easing is, um, you know, if you as an individual need more money, you have to go and get more income to put in your bank account. Right. right. But if at the central bank uh, or the federal reserve, um, they have the ability to essentially edit their bank account. So they can say, uh, we're simply going to say rather than have $2 trillion, now we have 3 trillion. Uh, this used to be a process where literally they would have to print more money. So they would have like an actual physical money printer, go print more dollars. Now they just edit their bank account. Now they've got $3 trillion instead of $2 trillion. Now, in an overgeneralized manner, what that does to um, the rest of the uh, kind of currency is it devalues it, right? So you can almost think of this as um, the, the ability for your dollar uh, to purchase goods and services. So the purchasing power. A dollar equals a dollar, right? In the sense of it's always said $1, it's always going to be worth $1. What changes is what can that dollar buy? And so this is where you hear people say, you know, back in my day, a Coca-Cola was 25 cents, right? Or back right. in my day, a gallon of gas was, you know, 40 cents. Well, it's not that the gallon of gas got any more valuable or that Coca-Cola got more valuable. <clears throat> it's that instead through inflation, the dollar was devalued. And so now uh, you need more dollars to buy that same good or service. And, and so ultimately that is uh, one of the big things that's misunderstood uh, or not understood uh, due to the lack of financial education in our country. And so what we've got to do is one, we got to get people educated about that. But two is also they got to be able to find an asset where they can simply buy the asset, right? Or store their wealth in that asset and protect themselves from that inflation, right? The bottom 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They have all of their wealth in dollars. And so although they say, oh, I saved $500, I still have the $500 in there. What they don't realize is over years, uh, that $500 can buy less and less goods. So they're actually getting the purchasing power of their wealth taken from them. Uh, and so something like Bitcoin uh, or other inflation hedge assets, uh, the promise of them is that they can protect you from that, uh, that, that inflation and also that kind of degradation of the purchasing power. So this was something when I heard you talk about this months ago, it was something that kind of came to me and that's why I got into um, stocks in general was and stocks and Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency and things like that. And having assets as people will call them. Um, I noticed I was saving money. I'd always had a savings account ever since I got a job. I'm all, I just turned 23, but I got a job when I was 16. I started saving money. I was like, Oh, people taught me to save, you know, the Dave Ramsey school of, of finance was pay yourself first, put it in a savings account. Don't touch it, leave it alone. And then I found out like, I'm not saving any more money as the years go on, like if I have like my savings account gets to like $5,000, it's less than it was at $2,000 even just a few years ago. So why is it so important in your mind? I mean, it makes sense, but why is it so important to have assets, especially we saw the stock market go down and then it came back, you know, tenfold just these last few months. Why do you think assets, why do you think more people don't understand about assets? What do you think people don't understand about assets in general? Uh, I guess is a better question. 
Yeah. So, so ultimately, like this is the secret that rich people know and poor people don't, right? And I use rich and poor as kind of just very polarizing terminology to describe the top 50% and the bottom 50%. Um, but really, it comes down to, uh, you could also separate people into educated and not educated when it comes to finance, right? And so the top 50% are educated in the sense that they understand inflation is going to happen. You cannot stop it, right? It may not be a lot of inflation or it may be a lot, but either way, we live in a world where there is inflation. And so that if inflation will devalue the dollar, right? And so again, uh, if you want to hold dollars, you're going to have less and less purchasing power in the future. If you want to not hold dollars, you can buy assets, whether that's stocks, that's a house, that's you know investment properties, that's precious metals, Bitcoin, whatever. And over time, the dollar is going to get devalued. So it will take more dollars to buy that same asset, right? So this whole idea of like, when you buy a home, it goes up in value, right? You know, house, home prices always go up. No, it's not that the prices are going up from the value of the home increasing, it's that the dollar's being devalued over years and years and years. And so if you go talk to your parents or your grandparents and you say, hey, how much did you buy the, you know, your, your house for? If they still live in the same house, they'll say, oh, you know, we spent uh, $40,000 on this house. And now you're like, wait a minute, that's $150,000, right? Like you 3X the value of your home. No, the value never changed. It still is a home, right? And yeah, sure, maybe the area became more or less desirable to live in. But really where a lot of that appreciation came from is simply just over years, the dollar being devalued. So where that brings you to is the educated who happen to usually be the wealthy, they understand to get out of cash and invest, right? The system is set up, it punishes savers and it rewards investors. And so what you gotta be able to do is you gotta be able to get out of cash into investments uh, where you can hold assets for very long periods of time uh, and just allow inflation to take its toll and you end up quote unquote making money, right? Because you'll have more dollar value in the future than you do today. Uh, if you don't do that and you just sit in cash and you live paycheck to paycheck, then what ends up happening is the value of your dollars is going to get devalued. Uh, and instead of making money like the wealthy and educated do, you actually are losing money, right? Like you described in terms of literally you're having your purchasing power stolen from you. Uh, and so that's just not a good situation to be in. Um, and so people just need to understand that investors get rewarded and savers get punished in the existing system. Yeah, just the way it feels like the way we have our situation built, especially in this, I mean, more so in this country than anywhere, but it's, you almost get punished if you don't put your money in the game, right? Like the game being stocks or whatever it is, whatever asset you buy, if you own nothing, you have, you have nothing really, no matter how much cash you have, it really doesn't matter. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So when you say like, when we watched the asset prices, I know a lot of people, and this will be kind of like a personal thing for people I know, they were telling me, I'm taking my money out of my 401k and I'm just going to spend it. Like I'm going to take my money out. I don't trust the stocks and stuff. I don't trust the value of money and stuff. That is a bad, in my opinion, that's a bad idea to take your money out. Never, never do that. Always leave it alone until you're ready to retire or whatever. But why do you think people have, why do you think that it would be better to invest, say, take your money out of 401k, but if you put it into something like an asset like Bitcoin, would you recommend that to people and I mean, I know you're not giving financial advice. I, also, that's a disclaimer. We're not giving financial advice, but <laughs> I don't want people to lose money and blame me. But yeah, so, so here, here's the way I would describe it is uh, one, definitely not giving financial advice, but I can give right. you a framework for how to think through it, right? right. And the key to thinking through this is um, I want to have, uh, I always say there's four keys to financial success. The first is you got to spend less than, uh, less than you make. If you're spending more money than you make, then you're screwed already because you're just going to be in debt, right? So you got to spend less than you make. The second is you got to have multiple streams of income. 
Some people have a regular job, they got a side hustle. Some people have you know, three side hustles. Some people have uh, a job plus they make investments that throw off cash flow. Like there's a whole bunch of ways to do it, but you gotta have multiple streams of income. Uh, and really that's from a defensive standpoint is to make sure that one, not only you're making more money, but two is in case one of them goes away, you've got these other ones to kind of make up for it, right? So step one, spend less than you make. Step two is make sure you got multiple streams of income. Step three is to get out of cash and into assets, right? So invest. And then the fourth step is you got to be patient and you got to be disciplined over a long period of time, right? And so the whole idea is um, each individual person has different goals, different things they're optimizing for. So whether they need a 401k or they shouldn't use their 401k or if one asset over another asset is uh, valuable for them, it's hard to kind of give one size fits all, uh, you know, advice or, right. or, or thought process. Those four key things are really important. The thing that I will say is um, a lot of people end up uh, having one investment strategy. And that tends to be uh, a really bad one where they're super emotional and they just chase returns, right? And they look at it and they say, what's the thing that's gone up the most? Oh, with tech stocks. Like, Let me go buy a bunch of tech stocks. But what you got to remember is that the return on an asset is determined at the time that you buy the asset. So if you buy an asset, you know, think of it as a car. If I buy a car for 2X what it's worth, of course, I'm never going to be able to sell that for the same amount. I overpaid for the car. So everyone else is going to want the market value and therefore I'm going to lose money on it, right? If I buy a car in a great deal, I could buy a really shitty car. But if I paid 500 bucks for the car, but it's really worth five grand, then I will always make money because I'll be able to find somebody to pay a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand dollars for it, right? And so they feel like they're getting a deal and I'm making money because I made the right purchase. And so it's all about what's the price at which you buy something. Now, when it comes to things like Bitcoin and other kind of asymmetric return assets, most investors are only right about 48 to 52% of the time, which sounds like, oh, that's pretty good, 50, 50. Like if you want 50, 50 odds, you should go to the casino, right? Because that's basically a, a lot of times what you're gonna get there. Instead is the best investors in the world, they're only right 55 to 60% of the time. So think about the difference between you know, okay investors and great investors. It's not much, but the difference is that the great investors, they make sure that every investment they make has asymmetric upside, meaning that the downside risk they're taking is drastically outweighed by the upside potential of the investment. When they do that, they know that, okay, this investment is going against me. They immediately cut bait. They protect losses. And then when they are right that 55 to 60% of the time, they end up capturing immense value on the upside, right? And so when you look at that, what you end up seeing is most investors are not good investors in terms of a, a batting average, right? Amen. They're only yeah, going to be right 55% or less of the time. So what you got to do is you, <clears throat> you got to make sure that you're making asymmetric investments. The problem is there's just not that many available to the average investor who's not a credit investor right? Now you get into picking stocks and doing all this kind of stuff. It's very hard to do. And so what I usually tell people is don't try it. Don't play a game where you're not the best at it, right? If you don't have an advantage, don't play the game. Instead, what you can do is you can just uh, dollar cost average into low cost index funds and, and do things like that. That will ultimately end up outperforming any stock picking that you're likely to do. Now, what you also want to put into a portfolio is non-correlated assets. So if you take something like Bitcoin that has very low correlation to other assets, by adding a bunch of non-correlated assets together in a portfolio, you can actually de-risk that portfolio. 
And so Bitcoin is a perfect example of something that you can put in the portfolio. It's non-correlated. It should lower the overall risk of the portfolio. And it also has asymmetric upside. So if you're right about it and you put, you know, one to 3% of your portfolio, let's say into that asset, then you're going to get outsized returns because there's so much upside compared to the downside. And so it's all about just what am I optimizing for? What are my goals? Set a plan and then just stay very, very disciplined to that plan over a long period of time. And that's how you build wealth in America today. I've heard you talk about, um, Bitcoin, you use it as like a 60-40. You said you went on this like uh, speaking tour and you talked about 60-40. Can, can you explain just quickly uh, 60-40? What do, you, what do you mean by 60-40 investment strategy and stuff like that? What does that mean for the average person? Yeah, so 60-40 global portfolio basically is the idea that you have 60% of your investments in stocks and 40% in bonds. And that's today is seen as kind of the standard allocation uh, when it comes to portfolio construction. So kind of modern portfolio theory type construction. Um, that's changing a little bit just because right now the bond environment obviously pays so little given that we're in a 0% interest rate environment. Um, what I was talking about probably was this idea that if you had taken a 60-40 global portfolio uh, over the last five years, you'd returned about 7.2% annually. Yeah. So every year you would have compounded at 7.2%. When you take 1% of your assets, so half a percent from stocks, half a percent from bonds and bought Bitcoin, over that five-year period, your uh, investment return on an annual basis would have gone from 7.2 to 9.2. So there was 200 basis points of upside to capture by having that 1% allocation to Bitcoin. Now, if that 1% had gone to zero, you would have only lost 20 basis points. So it would have gone from 7.2 to 7% on an annual basis. So it's kind of 20 basis point downside, 200 basis point upside. You've got an asset that now is gonna benefit from this macro environment. It's kind of like you're damned if you don't, right? Because what ends up happening is the downside is so much less than the upside that it becomes more risky in, in some people's mind. There's an argument to be made that it's more risky to not have the exposure than it would be to actually have the exposure to something like Bitcoin. So when I'm going to just play a little bit of, I hate this term because so many people use it, devil's advocate. Um, yeah, for sure. When people say when Bitcoin was brought up and I've looked, you know, I've done it, I've researched it, especially after hearing you talk a few times, I'm like, oh, well, I'll get in on this, see what's going on, especially following you on Twitter. It's just you're inundated with it. Um, what is, uh, what would you say to somebody that says Bitcoin has high volatility, high volatility over, you know, so quickly and stuff like that? Would you, what would you tell those people? Look, people talk about volatility as a negative thing, right? What I always explain to people is volatility works both directions. So volatility just is price movement. And so you only don't like volatility when it goes against you. So I'm holding an asset, I'm long an asset, but it goes down in price. Then I hate volatility, right? Because that means I'm losing money the more volatile it is. But I actually want to be uh, invested in the most volatile assets when they're going in my direction right? Because volatility also means that they go up a lot. Yeah. And so what you end up having to do is you've got to be able to understand that day-to-day -day price fluctuations and volatility doesn't matter. What you've got to instead look at is over very long periods of time, you've got to wrap your head around, okay, does this volatility lead to upward price movement over long periods of time or downward price movements over time, right? Something like Bitcoin is, you know, one of, if not the best performing asset over the last decade, and it's constantly led to upward price movements over long periods of time so far. And so if you think that's going to continue, then the volatility is actually a positive. Now, because it's volatile, it'll go up a lot and it'll go down a lot in between on a day-to-day on -day basis. 
So if you just bought it and walked away and came back in, you know, 10 years, it's likely that that type of asset's going to be up a lot, right? Something like an Amazon stock has done this. But if you watch it day to day, it's like going on a roller coaster ride, right? I mean, like one day it's up 5%, the next day it's down 9%, the next day it's up 10%. You know, you're just like, Jesus, this thing is like got a mind of its own. And so ultimately, again, it goes back to patience and, and uh, uh, discipline, right? Set a plan, go ahead and buy it, be very long-term focused, and then just stay very patient, very disciplined. And they end up, if you had the right plan in the beginning, it ends up being very profitable. Uh, it can help you build wealth. So when it, I mean, I saw this recently at a gas station. This is on the Bitcoin topic. It said, accepts Bitcoin here. How would I go about if I had to say one Bitcoin, if I went and bought one Bitcoin, just sunk some money into it and was like, I have one Bitcoin. Would I walk in there with my wallet, like my virtual wallet and just pay? And would the price fluctuate as Bitcoin fluctuates or would they set a price at the gas station? I know this is a very micro question compared to what you just talked about. But if I walked in with a wallet, how do people, how do transactions go how do transactions work with Bitcoin, would you say, compared to the dollar or something like that? Yeah, so it depends on what they're denominating the price in, right? So if they're denominating it in dollars, then Bitcoin can be very volatile, meaning that uh, they could say, hey, this is $10, and that could change you know, within seconds in right. terms of how much Bitcoin you have to give them for, to be worth $10. Uh, there's a number of uh, technology providers that do that automatically. So it's just like you know, when you swipe your credit card, you don't think about anything other than just swiping your credit card, and it does a bunch of math and, and transactions and, and technology in the background. Same thing here is you basically just scan like a QR code on your phone, bam, it just pays it. And you don't think about, was it, you know, 140 Satoshis or 160, like it just paid $10 worth uh, based on that price at that moment. In terms of if they are denominating the price in Bitcoin, they could say, rather than it's worth $10, they could just say, hey, this is 160 Satoshis, right? Or this is two Bitcoin. And then you just know that regardless of what the US dollar exchange value is, you just know, hey, I got to give them two Bitcoin if I want that thing. And so it's kind of switching your mindset. And one of the best things I ever did was I switched my mindset. I said, look, every time I go to buy something, I'm going to think in my head, how many, how many Bitcoin is this worth? Right? Yeah. And what it did was all of a sudden, I didn't want to spend any money. Right? <laughs> I was like, hey, I, I, I want to hold the Bitcoin. And so I think that's a great way to uh, kind of for beginners is to start thinking in terms of Satoshis or, or denominating things in Bitcoin. So when you want to go to the movies, the movie's $25 for a ticket in New York City, right? To, to go when they open back up. How many Satoshis is that? Oh, okay, that's worth this many. I think that Bitcoin is going to continue to accrue value. I'm actually giving up future value today for this experience. Is it worth it? Right? Like all those decisions start to come in, into mind. And for people who aren't into Bitcoin, the same thing with compounding, right? If I spend a dollar today and I don't hold it for the next 10 years and allow it to compound, I'm giving up future value in order to consume whatever I'm doing today. Some experiences, some products, some services are worth that. Some, that's not a good trade, right? So I think people just got to figure that out. Yeah, I think it is smart to, to think about things. That's what I did, re especially recently. Starting about May, I got really into investing and things like this. And I was like, do I want to buy, you know, said products? I feel like we're a really consumer-based society, you know, buying things and having things. I was like, do I want to buy said product for 50 bucks or should I take that $50 and just invest it in, you know, an asset like Bitcoin or just buy a stock that I think is good? So or like, you know, invest in a fund or whatever. So I think it, the consumerism definitely takes over people. And it's what you're saying. They don't think the way you did with like, should I spend $25 or should I hold it for Bitcoin? They kind of just think like, oh, I want this $25 instant gratification is kind of what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Look, and, and uh, there's some benefits to that. Uh, it makes people work hard, right? It makes them want to have cash today to buy goods and services. 
It drives the velocity of money in an economy, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, economic growth, all, all that stuff can be positively spun. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of negatives, right? In terms of if we're just heavy consumers, you end up actually uh, having a financial incentive to consume because the dollar is going to be devalued. And so uh, this incentive is get rid of these dollars and get goods or services. Um, but also there's another path, which is the investing path. Unfortunately, the bottom 50% of Americans don't invest. And so we got to get people educated to get them to start investing so that they can get out of dollars, but not do it from a consumption only mindset. If you are an investor, you can grow the money. If you are a consumer, you're just destroying the money, right? In terms of how you look at it from your right. balance sheet standpoint. And so investors grow money, consumers destroy money on an individual basis. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some people enjoy doing that. Some people want to live their life that way. That's fine. Nobody's passing judgment. But if your focus is to grow your wealth and to build wealth, then you have to be an investor, not a consumer. Right. I can't, couldn't agree more. Uh, I know you got to run. You want to tell people where to find you and, and subscribe and stuff like that? Uh, just find me on Twitter, um, at, at A. Pompliano on Twitter. Uh, and then, oh, I guess uh, you can also subscribe. I, I write a daily letter. Um, we got about 70,000 uh, readers on there. Uh, it's just pompletter.com. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great resource for me, especially recently. And, uh, the pomp podcast, don't forget about that. Maybe someday I'll learn. I'll be smart enough to be on that one. <laughs> Let's do it, man. Thanks we'll for having me. <laughs> Thanks for having Thanks for being here.